0: series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber.
1: Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verse 39, and then going into chapter 8, verse 3. I thought we'd never finish chapter 7, but we're about to finish. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 entitled the message today, and we won't really get to the, uh, the gist of it, is how to deal with the gray areas of life. How to deal with the gray areas of life. And that'll be a part one, because we're gonna spend some time on that in chapter eight. How do you deal with the gray areas of life? But first, let's finish up chapter seven. Verses one through seven, just to put the chapter back together for you, the believers there in Corinth had a lot of questions. Wish we had the questions, All we have is the answers, and that's awfully difficult to know what their questions were except we we know a lot by how Paul answered them. Evidently, there was a perverted idea of sex. I mean, you mentioned the term, people got all kinds of funny feelings because they realized that this was in their minds wrong. And the Apostle Paul noted, that evidently that perverted view of sex even caused some of them to say, you know, Paul, you're single and we're a view, and I think it's best to be single. As a matter of fact, it even began to to get into the marriage couples, and they thought that sexual intimacy in marriage was something immoral. So Paul had to jump in and say, no, 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 no. And he sets, sets it back like it ought to be. He says, sex is a beautiful thing, but in the bonds of marriage. What makes it perverted is when you take it outside of what God has designed. And then he shows that sexual intimacy has nothing to do with the immorality mentioned in verse two of that passage. Then he comes to verse eight and nine, after having dealt with that question, he comes to eight and nine, and he deals with divorcees and widowers and widows in the question of, may I remarry? Whereas the first question seemed to be, should I get married? And now they're saying, may I remarry or may I marry? To these, he suggests that they stay single. Of course, Paul being single, his whole thought is on nothing distracting you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Obviously, he would say that back to them. But he says, if you cannot control the sexual desire that was awakened during the previous marriage, then it would be better to marry. Now, implied in that is, obviously, according to biblical guidelines. In verses 10 through 14, Paul dealt with those married to unbelievers and he addressed the question they were asking, should we stay married? He tells the women, if your unbelieving husband will stay with you, by all means, let him stay. He tells the believing man, that if that unbelieving wife will stay, don't send her away. Let let God use you to sanctify that whole family. Then in verses 15 through 17, Paul dealt with a very difficult situation of an unbelieving spouse abandoning their mate. And he tells the the believing spouse, whose unbelieving spouse has left them, he says, listen, you're free, you're no longer bound. And in my understanding of that, that means you're free to remarry. Now, if you look at the rest of the passage, he he, he says that singleness is really the better way to go. But as far as I understand the passage, you're free to remarry. In verses 18 through 24, Paul addresses the question, does a believer stay in the situation he he or she is in when they get saved? See, many of them were slaves. Many of them were in situations they really couldn't change. So the Apostle Paul writes back, and he says to them that whatever situation a believer finds himself in, God will use that situation to glorify himself. Life never works against us. It only works for us. Now that Christ is in you, you're never a victim. You're always the victor, even for slaves. And then in verse 25 through 31, Paul addresses what every single person should consider. And that is that that single person's first purpose in life is to live surrendered before God, to live a life of holiness and purity before Him. And being single, he has every opportunity to do that. But then, he says, if you want to get married, that's not sin, but you must understand there's some unavoidable circumstances that are going to be yours, some things you're going to have to deal with. And again, the the silent thread that runs through there, make sure nothing distracts you in your walk. With God. Verses 32 through 35, Paul shows that nothing should ever distract us in our walk with Jesus. Whether you're single or whether you're married is never the issue with Paul. It's their issue, but not his. His issue is nothing, nothing should block your walk with God. The whole emphasis that he's had throughout this chapter has been that. And then verses 36 through 38, he deals with fathers who either choose to give their daughters in marriage or choose not to give their daughters in marriage. And even though that's a cultural situation and a very difficult passage, we learned something last week, I think. And that is that children ought to involve their Christian parents in their, their life's partner in marriage. It ought to be a process. It ought to be something for the boy. It ought to be something for the girl to go before mom and dad and make sure both sets of parents are involved. And I might just say this, last week I said, I kind of addressed the young people in that. May I address the parents? Be the kind of parents that your young person would want to involve in that process. Make sure you're living the godly life so that your children will want to come to you and get your wisdom and your leading in that situation. Well, in verse 39 and 40, Paul completes his answers to the questions concerning marriage and celibacy. And we we want to get through that before we get into chapter eight this morning. He finishes by dealing with widows and widowers. He says in verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, he says, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Now, the first thing that Paul does here is give the biblical precedent for marriage. A wife is bound for as long as her husband lives. Now, That's very clear. You can't miss that in scripture. A woman is bound to her husband in marriage, not because of a law, but because of the law, God's law. For how long? As long as her husband lives. Now, careful. We must understand something. Paul has already discussed, even in this chapter, the eventualities that may occur in a woman's life that would cause her not to be bound to her husband. Verses 8 through 16, the Lord Jesus mentioned immorality, and Paul adds to that the unbelieving spouse abandoning the mate. And Paul is not saying that death is the only reason for breaking of a marriage bond. There are those exceptions, and we have to be very careful. His whole focus here, however, is not a teaching on the longevity of marriage. His teaching is what happens when a mate dies. So his teaching is focusing in on the widow or the widower. And so therefore he says in verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead... She is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Now, that word for dead is an interesting word. It's the word actually meaning asleep. How many of you have ever heard that there's a soul's sleep when you die? Have you ever heard that? Well, whoever told you that, go back and say, I love you, but you're out of your mind. The word asleep there is the, is the word normally used for dead. Matter of fact, this is the word, word used in John chapter 11 and verse 11. I love this chapter. I was in Romania several years ago, and I see such humor in John chapter 11. I just wonderful humor in that. When Judea was, they, they were, Jesus needed to go back to Judea, they had just tried to kill him over there. Now they're in the safety of being in another place, a Bethany over over, not the Bethany you think of outside of Jerusalem, but there was another Bethany. And here they are. And the disciples don't want to go. They don't want to go. I mean, are you going back there? They said to Jesus. He says, Our brother Lazarus is asleep. (laughs) And then they go on and say, Oh, good, if he's asleep, we won't have to go, will we? But he uses the term to denote the death of Lazarus. He goes on to say, He is dead. (laughs) Do you understand? When Stephen was being stoned to death, Luke records in Acts chapter seven, verse 60, and falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. It's a beautiful picture of what happens to the body. I'm just throwing this in because sometimes it's helpful to understand what death is. We fear what we don't understand. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer Rather to be absent from the body than to be at home with the Lord. There's a departure at death. The body is always the word that uh, sleep is attached to, never the spirit. For the body is put into the ground. But what, what happens after you've slept for a while? You get up. Your spirit is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the word thanatos, death, implies within it the separation at death. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about one day that body getting back up, but this thought I'd throw that in. But the word asleep there, the word dead is asleep. If the husband is dead is that word for asleep. Now, the verb is in the heiress tense. I thought this was interesting. The verb being in the heiress tense means at the very moment he dies, you are free to marry again. That's interesting, isn't it? The very moment that he dies, uh, the verb Sin is in no way under, she is in no way under the authority of anyone. The idea is she gives herself in marriage. Remember the previous verses, she was given in marriage, but not this lady. This lady has been married, her husband's now dead, and she answers for herself. She makes her own decision. But Paul adds in verse 39, only in the Lord. Now you're free the moment he died, but only in the Lord. In the Lord." Now, what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, she should only marry if God the Holy Spirit puts that on her heart. But the second thing it means is, she should only marry a believer, period. She's a believer, she should only marry a believer. If she does marry, she marries a believer. You know, by the way, if this is the standard for a widow, it is to be the standard for all believers. The previous verses, they were already married to unbelievers, and that's not the situation here. Here, the husband is dead, and she has the opportunity to marry, if she chooses to do so, then she must marry a believer and as the Lord would lead her in that. Well, the implication here is also that if it's a widow he's talking to, he must also include the widower, the man or the woman, either way, it goes both sides. Verse 40 says, but in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the the Spirit of God. Paul adds that she would be happier if she remained as she is. Now again, he says, this is my opinion. Perhaps if he were married and God was using him to fulfill his purposes through that marriage relationship, maybe he would come at it in a different direction. But he's not married, he's a single man. And he says, in my opinion, and he has, certainly has the right to share that. Unfortunately, the word that is used there for happier, she'll be happier if she doesn't, is not really happier. That's, that's an unfortunate translation. The scripture says, but in my opinion, she is happier. No? The word is makarios. And if you've ever studied the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, you realize that makarios means far beyond happy. Matter of fact, some translations even translate that word happy in the Beatitudes. And that is not what it means. Happiness comes from the word hap, and hap isn't as something external in one's life. We never find our joy. We never look find what we're looking for in external things. As believers, we find everything we're looking for internally in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word makarios is the idea of being totally, inwardly, completely, spiritually satisfied. That's the word makarios, and it's hugely different from the word happiness, or happier, or happy. It's not the same thing at all. With happiness, it depends on what's going on. But with this word, regardless of what's going on, I always can find complete satisfaction in the Lord Jesus who lives within me." Well, Paul tells the widow and the whittier, widower widower, <laughs> the widower, that in his sanctified opinion, it's better that they remain single. That's his opinion. He says, better if you remain single, because everything they're looking for to find joy in their life, they already have in Jesus Christ. You don't need to get married, you're better off like you are. Not sin if you're married, no, no, not at all. But he just says from his own opinion, they're free to marry. And then he says, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. (laughs) You know, a lot of things goes into this. If you meditate on it for a while, some of the Corinthians, arrogant as they were, were probably saying, yeah, well, God's Spirit lives in me, and I say this, and I say that. And I think Paul is saying, hey, listen to what I've got to say, and the Spirit of God also lives in me. He energizes my life. It's not a braggadocious statement. It's not an arrogant statement. But what he's just simply saying is, this is my opinion, but I want you to know something, it's a sanctified opinion. I'm under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. So it might do you good to pay attention to what I got to say. It's not just something you heard in the barbershop. This is the Apostle Paul giving his sanctified opinion. The Spirit of God energizes my life. Now, you might want to pay attention. Well, that completes chapter seven. And inside of me, I want to say, hallelujah, (laughs) hallelujah. The best statement now made in all of chapter seven I'm telling you, it was Jordan Thompson when he went home and told his parents, I think our services in the morning should be rated PG-13. I think that's, to me, the best statement of all that were made in chapter 7. <laughs> well, we're coming out of that now. We're entering into another area, and we're going to start part one of that at this time. You see, the questions that they asked Paul at the beginning of chapter 7 does not stop at the end of chapter 7. It just covers the marriage issue and the singleness issue. Now, these questions are answered all the way through chapter 10. And the question that we're going to have to ask ourselves today is, how do you deal with the gray areas of the Christian life? You say, wait, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the things that aren't specifically mentioned in Scripture. How does a believer deal with them? Now, what are you talking about? Well, I say drinking. Oh. Oh, I bet you I'm asked that 110 times a week if I'm asked it one. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about drinking. It says you ought not get drunk. And so we have sort of a gray area comes in here, doesn't it? We have an area of smoking. Like the guy who said, hey, if I smoke, that'll make me go to hell. I'll say, no, it just make you smell like you've been there. But I mean, what does the Bible say about it? It doesn't say anything about smoking. What does it say about wearing makeup? Nothing, and yet i 've been over in Romania, and i 've seen some very famous people like Kay Arthur without makeup. I believe it's a sin not to wear. <laughs> Out a man is decaying, man, cover it up, do something for it, looking bad. But does the Bible speak about that? It says card playing. What about card playing? you ever played any cards? Uh, what about women wearing slacks? You know <laughs> What about hair over your ears? Do you have sin in your heart? Well, I don't know. If you have hair over your heart, do you have sin in your ears? I mean, we got all kinds of these things. These are gray areas, and you might find them in Hesitations chapter 14, but the Bible does not specifically, like people would want it to, nail these issues down. One of the reasons Christians spend so much time arguing about these issues, and matter of fact, that sounded like the outline of some people's sermons this morning, I guarantee you, right here in Chattanooga. One of the reasons people argue about these things is because the Bible is not explicitly clear concerning them. Now, it, it is clear in other ways, but not explicitly. Like you're looking for the word "smoking," <laughs> you might can find the altar, you know, <laughs> or the smoke. A cloud of smoke is surrounded Mount Sinai. That doesn't mean all of them were smoking cigars. That means God's presence was there. I mean, you can't find it. Uh, these issues are not black and white. It's what I call the gray. Areas And every century, Christians have had to learn to deal with such matters as this, gray areas. Changes with the ages. Every age has a different gray area that you have to deal with. You have to confront it, you see. Matter of fact, the first major council of the Christian church in the book of Acts had to do with a gray area. Had to do with circumcision. Had to do with the dietary laws. The Jewish people there, the believers, were were afraid to associate with Gentiles unless they'd been circumcised, the Gentiles. And they were afraid to eat with them because of their dietary laws. It says in Acts 15, verse one, and some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. And what was the decision? Well, they they chose not to make the Gentile be circumcised. Says in Acts 15, 19, therefore it is my judgment, James says, that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. But concerning the eating laws, because of the situation and as delicate as it was, they said in Acts 15:20, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication from what is strangled and from blood. See, there's always a give and take when you're living up under grace. Peter made a beautiful statement according to this. You never use your freedom to in any way. Uh, become a license that's, that stomps on your brother who's weaker. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, it says, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So when we're under grace, yes, we're free. We're not under a law. There's no laws pending to us. We're up under Christ, and the fulfillment of, our, of the law is in one word, the fruit of his spirit, which is love. And when that's there, that's going to give you a sensitivity, not just to God, but to others. And there are going to be times that you're around a weaker brother. You're dealing with a gray area. And God may cause you to exclude some things out of your life simply because, not that it measures to your spirituality eternity, but it may have a make a difference with your brother. Normally, people go to two extremes when it comes to the gray areas. One, legalism. <laughs> to get it out of the gray area back to the black and white area, they take and make standards out of what's not even in Scripture. Making women not wear slacks to church and all the other things that goes along. They make laws out of it. Well, the other extreme of that is license. Uh, these are your party hardies, the antinomians, you know, that Paul dealt with in Romans. And the extreme of this is doing whatever you want to do. Man, I'm under grace. I can do whatever I want to do. Even if it's at the expense of my testimony, you know why they go to those extremes? Because they're trying to get rid of the gray areas, and you can't. You don't get rid of them by legalism, and you don't get rid of them by by license. You deal with them head on, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God, and that's what we're about to get into in chapter eight. Something that's not as crystal clear as you'd like for it to be. It's a gray area. And Paul's gonna begin to show us how do we enter into this? How do we deal with brothers around us that that perhaps do not quite grasp the message that we do? Well, first of all, and the only thing we'll have time to deal with, you must have God's love mixed with your knowledge. I wanna tell you something, folks. If I had the choice in an individual of knowledge and God's love being in him. I take God's love being in him any day in the week because the knowledge will come. If you love God, you're gonna love his word and that will develop. But there are many people who have gotten into the word and they've come up with a knowledge of something and now they're using that without being tempered by the Holy Spirit of God producing a love within them. And so before you even approach a gray area, you gotta make sure that you're wrapped in love. Your knowledge is wrapped with the Spirit of God producing love in your life. If that love is not there, then your knowledge is of no effect. In fact, it becomes harmful to your brother. Now, let me give you a little background as we enter in to these verses. All of the Corinthian believers knew about idols and what was sacrificed to them. The sacrifices made by the pagan people of Corinth were food offering. Now, let me explain that. In the pagan society, they believed that evil spirits were constantly trying to invade human beings, and that the easiest way for that demonic spirit to invade that human being was to attach itself to a food before the person would eat it. So, as he ate it, the demons came in with the food. That was the pagan belief. The only way the spirits could be removed from food was through the food being sacrificed to a god. So, they would bring their food to sacrifice it to the idols. The the sacrifice, therefore, served two purposes. It gained favor of the false god, and secondly, it cleansed the meat from demonic contamination. So if you were going to the store and you wanted to buy meat that was good, son, you would buy meat that was sacrificed to idols because it had been cleansed of any demonic contamination. The idol offerings were divided into three parts. One part was burned on an altar as a sacrifice proper. That was the main thing given to the idol. The second part was given as payment to the priest who served at the temple. The remaining part was kept by the one who brought the offering. So that way he has now uncontaminated meat. Having having sacrificed it, he takes a portion of that back with him. In Corinth, remember, the temple of Apollo sat right in the middle of the city. Well, I wish I could just get on a a bus and it would be hard crossing the Atlantic. But take all of you over to Corinth, this show you what I saw this past summer, to realize that that temple of Apollo sat right in the marketplace on one side of the shops and on the other side of the shops, right there in the middle of where they would go looking for food every day. The meat that the priests would not eat was sold to the merchants in the marketplace. And buddy, this was specialty stuff. The meat was highly valued because it was cleansed of evil spirits. It had been sacrificed to the idols. It was used to serve guests at feasts and any kind of honorable occasion because they considered it to be so valuable. Now, you think about it for a second. You are now a believer, but you still live in Corinth. And you go to a wedding feast, for instance, and if they're gonna serve meat, they're gonna serve meat that's been sacrificed to an idol because in their mind, that meat is good. It's been cleansed of the demonic spirits that was with it. Now, there were some of the believers who refused to buy the meat. And when they went to these wedding feasts, they would make an embarrassment of everybody by adamantly saying, I will not touch it. And just, I mean, just doing it that way. Because they were afraid. And they could come out of all this pagan stuff and they were afraid of being pulled back into it. And so they would just back away, no matter how embarrassing the situation might be. On the other hand, some believers could care less. (laughs) They knew pagan deities did not really exist. They knew that. All they were was a piece of rock or some stone. They knew that evil spirits did not contaminate the food. They were mature. They were grounded in the Word of God. And they were completely clear in their conscience because they understood the message of grace. Now, you got two groups here. You got the Christians that are afraid to eat the meat, afraid to get around it. You got the Christians that weren't afraid to eat the meat. And as a matter of fact, they would eat it in front of anybody. It didn't bother them because that's not what determines my eternal position in Christ. Now, Paul addresses, I don't think, both of these groups. He addresses the last group. He addresses the group that understands. He addresses the group that that says, hey, it's no big deal. All there are is a piece of wood or a stone. This meat's good, man, you tried any? And he addresses them by what he begins to say here in chapter eight, verse one, look at it. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. The all there, to me, would be relegated to the group he's speaking to. All of these that have, have written him, evidently. The word for know is the word evo. Now, ido, we've mentioned this many, many times, comes from the root word horao, and it means yes to know. But it means to know with a, a greater perception, a fuller understanding. You've got to grasp on something intuitively. The word for knowledge is the word gnosis, so Paul says, we know that we all have this knowledge. We intuitively know that we all have this knowledge. We, we know and perceive fully that, that these people are sacrificing to idols. We also know and perceive fully that there's not a thing to it. And that that food, eat it or not eat it, it doesn't matter. There's no unclean foods. We're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. So we can eat whatever it is. But Paul wants them to know that's not the point. Just because you understand that, just because you know this, that's not the point. That's not the last word in a situation. Paul goes on in the end of the verse and says, now concerning things can to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Then he says, knowledge, now notice, notice how alone that word knowledge is. Knowledge makes arrogant. Now if that's all you have is knowledge, if that's all you have is some Mental ascension to something, and you have a full grasp of it, then look out. That's what makes you arrogant. The fact that they knew about demons and the fact that the demons could not inhabit the food, etc., was not in itself adequate. Knowledge alone makes one arrogant. Now what's the word for arrogant? First of all, it's present active indicative. is making one arrogant. Be careful what you know. Make sure what you know. Is clothed in the love of God, because if not, it's making you arrogant. Do you realize that? Do you, do you realize there's a danger in learning? There's a danger in knowing? The more you know, without the proper balance and the proper love of the Spirit of God, makes you a person. Fusio is the word used in the Greek. It means a, a spiritual airbag. <laughs> Remember, I used this illustration back when we first hit that word back in chapter 4 that when you buy a big old bag of potato chips, and I know I'm not supposed to eat them, but if you get a big old bag of potato chips, and it looks like it's full, and it says, bargain, 20% more, and you get it in the big old bag, you take it home, and you, you, pop, the, you pop the top on it, and then what happens first? The air goes out, and what's left? Nothing. They gypped you. They made you think that whole thing was full of potato chips, and it wasn't, because it looked good on the outside, but had nothing at all on the inside. You see, and that's what Paul is saying. That's the word "fusio." And uh uh-oh has the idea not only are you arrogant, everybody knows that you're arrogant. You're making a, a display of your arrogance by only having the knowledge that you have. And you may be right in your knowledge. You may be so right, you could debate anybody on that knowledge. But he says knowledge apart from God's love is not enough. You've got to have the love of God mixed in with that knowledge so that you'll have the flexibility and understanding of being sensitive with it and how you can use it to help your brother and not hinder your brother. It's a whole problem. Paul adds, verse one, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. I love this. Love is is that which edifies. The word for love is the word agape. And of course, It has the meaning of a love that is a surrendered love. It's not an emotion. Do you know that? It's not an emotion. It may involve it, but it's not an emotion. It's the fruit of one's choice to surrender fully and wholly to God. That's what it is. It's a choice. It starts with a choice. You may not feel anything, but you make a choice to love God. And as a result of that, He loves through you. That love is produced as the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. Look over in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We forget this. This is not something man can produce. Man can come up with knowledge, but man cannot produce the love with which will surround that knowledge and make what he knows helpful to others. <clears throat> Galatians 5, 22. And by the way, when it mentions the fruit of the Spirit is love here, that's a cluster. Some people think that each one, the first day, the love pops out. And the second day, the patience pops out. And the third day, the, and it's like different kinds of fruit. No, it's one cluster of fruit. If one's there, they all have to be there. And so he says in Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Verse 23, gentleness, self-control, against which there is no law. You know, he says back in verse 14 of Galatians 5, the, the law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself, and only the word of, the Spirit of God can produce it. So the word for edifies then, love edifies, the word for edifies is the word that means to build a house. Igdomel. It is the word that's used to build something up, not tear something down. So if you have this love present, which is only the product of the Holy Spirit of God, then you have knowledge, then God can take you through your love and your knowledge and build somebody up, but it won't be used to hinder them, it'll be used to help them. Knowledge without the fruit of God's Spirit is devastating. Does nothing but puff one up. They may have the right conviction, but it's worthless when it comes to helping others. Verse two, it says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. The word supposes is the word that we looked at earlier and when Paul said, I I think, uh, actually it's in that last verse of chapter seven, you didn't realize it, but it's "dokeo," And "dokeo" means to suppose, to appear, to think. And and what he's saying is if anyone supposes, it's a word that has an idea of, uh, if, if you have to come to this estimation of yourself, present tense, if you go around with this supposition, uh, the word for no is the word evil, in which, which is the verb tense is perfect, active, indicative. If you, if you think you have come to a state of understanding, oh, aren't you, aren't you something? Aren't, isn't God glad to have you on his side? Well, Brother Wayne, I can quote the whole New Testament backwards in this, in <laughs> in the Greek, and I'm thinking, well, whoopee, flat, (laughs) do. You think that impresses God? You know, you go to Israel, the Jews have memorized the New Testament. They, They can quote any verse you want to quote, but they have still rejected Jesus as being their Messiah. So what good does it do to have the knowledge? You can have the knowledge, you see. But if anyone comes to think that he has fully grasped something, if anyone is going around thinking that he has come to know and fully understand, Paul goes on. He has not yet known as he ought to know. Paul changes the word from know to gnosko. He has the idea of experientially know, perfect tense. He is not where he thinks he is. He has a right knowledge but not the right understanding. He's not as smart as he thinks he is. That's what Paul is saying. If you think you have come to the place where, that you can't be taught anymore, and you have the fullest understanding about something, look out, because you're not as smart as you think you are. You see, many people know God's Word. They know it well. They love to take it and cram it down your and my throat. And what Paul is saying is, they're devoid of the love of the Holy Spirit of God which makes it palatable for anyone hungry to listen. Without the fruit of God's spirit, they're spiritual airbags. All the knowledge they have is useless because all it's doing is bending, breaking, and crushing weaker brothers who haven't come to that knowledge because without the love, they don't know how to use it. They have an inflated opinion of their opinion. You know anybody like that? Raise your hand if you know anybody like that, this one. (laughs) Well, me too. Verse three. But if anyone loves God, man, I love the contrasting words he puts in here. If anyone loves God, (laughs) well, what about these people? Evidently, they don't. They love their knowledge. They love what they understand. And they love to use it to exercise their freedom and beat you to death with it. But if anyone loves God, I love this. The word loves God is in the present active indicative. In other words, he lives loving God. This is not something he does on Sundays. This is his life, abandoned to God. The word for loves is the word "agapao," which is the same word we looked at, a little while, different form. It means that this person has totally abandoned himself to God and to his word. It's impossible to know God and not loving. Loving God is the most important evidence of a right relationship with him. Those who love God, Paul says, are known by him. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Gnosko, he is known, experientially known. Present active indicative. This person experientially knows God and God experientially knows him and they walk in that kind of oneness. Now that's what you're looking for. That's what Paul's heart is. It was in chapter seven. It is in chapter eight. Dealing with their questions. He knows where they're coming from. And He's answering them with an eternal perspective. You see, love is the key to all the behavior that we have. Knowledge is not. It's a big part. But love is the key. Look over 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to preempt the chapter for you just to show you what's coming. He, he, Paul's message is so interwoven. You can't miss it. And how many people, listen, a statement that God's given to me, and you might think about it. This is not biblical, but it's a statement that God's given to me. You can always know a man by what he chooses to defend. If he defends the fact that he can drink, watch out. That man may not love God. If he defends the fact that he can smoke a stogie whenever he gets ready, watch out. That man may not love God. If he defends something, look out. If we, Our only defense should be of the Lord Jesus Christ and of our love for him that has to be preeminent no matter how right we are, no matter how conservative we are. If we can dot the I's and cross the T's, if we're not loving God, it doesn't make a hill of beans difference to anybody. You're not helping a soul. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a what? A clanging. Have you ever heard, you ever? sitting near an orchestra pit and been near the cymbal and realize how irritating that sound is? Whoa! Clang, clang, clang. Next time you get up and you want to go spill your knowledge on somebody without the love of Christ, get you some cymbals and get in front of a mirror and make sure you know how you're going to sound like. Clang, clang, clang. About all you sound like. all I sound like. but I'm not loving God. He says in 1 Corinthians 13 too. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am what? Nothing, and that word for nothing is the word that means a zero with the lid kicked completely off. Verse three, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me how much? Nothing. Verse four, love is patient, love is kind and and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not what? Arrogant, it's not an airbag, you see. Verse eight, love never fails, but there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it'll be done away. But now abide, faith, hope, and love, these three. Faith, hope, and love. Man, three marvelous characteristics. Well, how would you want to pick one as being the best? And he says, but the greatest of these is what? Is love. Bottom line, it's what fulfills the law. It's it's what indicates to everybody around you that you're filled with the Spirit of God. Not what you know. That does not indicate anything. What What indicates it is if you're filled with the Spirit of God. Paul is chiding. These believers in Corinth that know, they know all about idolatry. They know the the futility of all that stuff. They know that that meat's not going to hurt them. But Paul is chiding them because they have nothing to go with that knowledge. This automatically erases what is known. i tell you what, does that sound like a Christian world we live in today or what? You know, there's a lot of people that I know that are so knowledgeable, they can tie me around a tree. I'm serious, they can. It doesn't take much, but they can tie me around a tree. But when I sense in my spirit, they have no concern for me at all. The only thing they have is to, to, to vomit their knowledge over me. And I put it that way because it's exactly what it is. Regurgitate it on you and walk away and think their selves are spiritual. You know, I'm very pro-life. Our church is pro-life. I believe if you're a Christian, you're pro-life. I believe if you love the Word of God, you're pro-life. But I want to tell you something. There are a lot of people who agree with me on that. But they're the meanest, rudest people I have ever met, some of them. I'll tell you why. They got the right knowledge, but they haven't got anything to go with it. Do you know, you know what Ephesians 4 says when it talks about putting on a new garment? He says, be angry. I love that verse, first part of it. <laughs> then it says, but do not sin with your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Two words for anger. And one's provoked anger. But I thought to myself, why would he say be angry? I heard a man say on the radio the other day, on one of these programs, that all anger is sin. Now, if he meant that as an uh, uh, absolute, he's wrong. I I do, for granted. (laughs) If you ever think, if you're wondering whether it's righteous anger or fleshly anger, go on and confess it, because it's probably (laughs) fleshly anger. You'll know the difference. James says in chapter 1, What The anger of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. What's the difference in the anger of man based on the knowledge that man has and the anger of God based on the same knowledge? I'll tell you what it is. The anger of man zeroes in on a person always. But the anger of God zeroes in on the problem. And you see, if you have the knowledge, then you're going to deal with the problem if you're filled with the Spirit of God. But if you have the knowledge and you're not filled with the Spirit of God, you're gonna deal with the person. And when you leave, that person will be mutilated by what you said you understood. That's why it's so important that that love be surrounding the knowledge that we have. We've got to do that, folks. So that we'll know when to be sensitive. We'll know when to say and when not to say. We'll know how to say when we do say. Because God's Spirit produces a love that is gentle and patient and kind and has all the aspects necessary for human relationships. Well, Paul does not want these believers to misuse what they know on those weaker than themselves. First Corinthians 8 9 says, if you wonder if I'm just taking liberty with these verses, this is his whole thought. He, he says in verse 9, but take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That's where he's headed. We just hadn't got there yet. So don't think I'm jumping ahead of myself. That's what Paul is seeking to say. Well, time's gone. (laughs) Well, it comes back to square one, doesn't it? Loving God, abandoning to God. That's the key. Matter of fact, I've been listening to that tape, uh, Tim, on Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. They changed the day, so I'm going to miss it. But I'll tell you what, you don't want to miss this one. What can God do through a man totally abandoned to Him? Of course, Oswald Chambers was a man totally abandoned to God. But I want to tell you remember this it's not how much a man knows, it's not how well he says it, it's not how well he can teach it. No, no, no. It's who he knows and how well he knows Him so that the one who he knows (laughs) bleeds out of him and covers what he knows. So that it can be palatable to people who are hungry who need to hear. That's the key. In other words, if we're not loving God, a good rule of thumb would be, keep your mouth shut. Because what's going to come out is going to do more damage than you ever dreamed. Even if you're correct, it's not going to help you a bit. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org.
0: That's jashow.org.